This is the Pat O'Keefe Show. Yesterday, the Yankees, and you, you just wonder if it's <laughs> if it's ever going to be easy for the Yankees. Uh, a five to two weather aided victory in Baltimore over the Orioles, in which the first uh, four innings for the Yankees looked like same old for the Yankees, where they couldn't generate any offense against an Orioles pitcher who was making his second major league start. And then in the fifth inning, the benefit of the hail as both teams were sent off the field. Now, this game actually started late because of the weather delay. And then once they got going, the Yankees offense did not get going as they were held scoreless into the fifth inning when both teams were sent off the field with Aaron Judge at the plate in the top of the fifth inning. But once they came back and once Baltimore went to the bullpen, the Yankees were finally able to take advantage. And the big hit, the big blow off the bat of Josh Donaldson, and I know he had the game-winning hit opening day at Yankee Stadium against the Boston Red Sox in extra innings. This was his first really big moment as a Yankee. Rizzo got the scoring started with an RBI single scoring Aaron Hicks, who in the leadoff spot last night actually had a pretty decent game. And then Giancarlo Stanton, an RBI double to tie the score at two. It could have been more, but Rizzo was thrown out at home. Originally, it was ruled safe, but they reviewed it. They challenged it. They overturned the call. Correct call was ultimately implemented. So the score was tied at two. And we've seen this a lot from the Yankees at the beginning of the season. The Yankees, even last night if you're watching, there were so many line drives that landed less than two feet foul that could have been that big hit to help them break through. The play at the plate was another example of that, where the Yankees were just off. Rizzo thought he uh, slid in safely to give the Yankees a 3-2 to lead. In fact, as I said, they called him safe to begin. They reviewed it. He was thrown out. And that is such a tough momentum stopper, if you will. And Josh Donaldson took care of that with one swing of the bat, a towering home run to right center field at a Camden Yards that is no longer the band box it used to be. If you're watching either of the first two games on the Yes Network of this series, they have spoken extensively about the wall in left field and left center field having been moved back to severely cut down on the amount of home runs in that ballpark. Donaldson goes the opposite way, a home run to right center field, and the Yankees tack on a run in the sixth inning, and once again, their bullpen does an outstanding job uh, in relief of Jamison Tyone. The pitching for the Yankees this season, it hasn't been good. It's been great. The pitching's been great. The starting pitching, and you can't look at the innings pitched. I know baseball's in a different place now anyway because of the starting pitchers not going too deep into ball games anymore, but you have to even throw that out the window at the beginning of this season because spring training was three and a half weeks long, so these guys are not nearly stretched out enough. So all you can hope for is two things. Number one, your starter gives you a good effort when he is on the mound, and by and large, the Yankees starters have done that to begin the season through the first nine games, and then the bullpen has to be on point, and the bullpen's especially the first month of this baseball season, are incredibly important. And Sears and King and Holmes end up going three and a third innings, excuse me, four and a third innings of shutout ball to close out a 5-2 to two win for the Yankees. 
Sears picking up his first major league win. And, you know, for you fantasy players, and I'm sure you're already finding this out, there are um, a lot of wins from relievers. I mean, case in point, last night, Jamison Tyone goes four and two-thirds innings. Aaron Boone wanted him to get through the fifth because he was in line to get the win. But he got into trouble with two outs in the bottom of the fifth inning. And Boone goes to the bullpen and brings in Sears to face the dangerous Cedric Mullins. And I call that the old Denny Nagel from the 2000 Subway Series between the Yanks and the Mets. And back then it was a big deal. Joe Torre taking Denny Nagel out with two outs in the fifth inning. One out from registering a World Series victory. That was really the only memorable moment Denny Nagel had in a Yankees uniform. But the Denny Nagel is now commonplace in Major League Baseball, especially among the Yankees. So somebody's got to get credited with the win until baseball changes the rule, and I don't think they will. And frankly, I don't think they should because it's not fair to all of the starting pitchers who came before. The rule is if you're a starting pitcher, you have to pitch five innings to qualify for the victory. Tyone went four and two-thirds, but somebody on the winning team has to be credited with the win, and it's going to be a lot of times these middle relief guys, these middle inning guys. Last night it was Sears. Holmes picks up his first save. And that's the thing about this Yankees bullpen. It's not the big names that are getting it done. In fact, the biggest name in the Yankee bullpen, Aroldis Chapman, is the biggest concern in the Yankee bullpen right now. But what they have, and it's starting to develop, they have a stable of young, talented, powerful arms, a la the Tampa Bay Rays in recent years. Remember the 2020 ALDS? The Yankees and the Rays, Tampa won that in five games. The biggest difference in that series, Tampa's starters would go three, four innings, and then Kevin Cash would go to the bullpen. And every time he went to the bullpen, he brought out another guy who threw 98, 99, 100 miles an hour. And the frustrating thing for the Yankee fan was they were guys you had never even heard of before. Whereas the Yankees had all these high-priced guys in their bullpen. Obviously, Aroldis Chapman, who gave up the home run to Brasso, that ultimately doomed the Yankees and sent them home for the season. The Yankees had Zach Britton, very high-priced relief pitcher. Adam Adovino, very high-priced relief pitcher. The Yankees had all of these guys. They're paying seven times what Tampa Bay was paying their guys And Tampa's guys were better, and it was so unbelievably frustrating, and it told you a lot about the status of those two franchises. Well, the Yankees have done a really good job since then of kind of swinging it the other way, and the Yankees are now developing their own stable of young, powerful arms, whether it's Sears or King or Holmes. Loisaga last year was one of the best relief pitchers in the American League. And you still have Chapman at the back of the bullpen, And you hope that he can be what he is supposed to be. But on the off chance that he's not, look, Aroldis Chapman has been in the major leagues for a long time now. And he has a lot of miles on that left arm. He's got a lot of 103, 104 mile an hour fastballs on that left arm. So if he's not that guy anymore, at least the Yankees do have options. Like they did the other night when they took Chapman out of the game with the bases loaded and brought in King. And he got the Yankees out of the jam. Uh, Knicks fans uh, hear Brendan Brown on our radio broadcasts throughout the year, along with Ed Cohen on the uh, 
MSG Radio Network here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Brendan also did a handful of games on MSG television this year with Mike Breen and Kenny Albert. Uh, Brendan, I appreciate you uh, giving us a couple of minutes before heading off to Easter Sunday Mass with the family today. (laughs) If the church is close, you can get it done. But I I like your selection of... uh... Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody music on Easter, like kind of firing it up a little bit. Well, you know what? That that's, that could be your walk-up music. Will Pesic produced in the show, so that's his selection. <laughs> I, uh, I I can't take credit for that. You know, before we get into the basketball, I was just laughing because I was going through a couple of Yankee points earlier in the show, and, and knowing you, I'm sure you were listening. Um, what our listeners don't realize is that, yes, you eat, sleep, and breathe basketball, You've got opinions and knowledge on all sports. I'm sure at some point we'd love to have you on and you can break down what's uh, wrong with the Yankees' bullpen situation as well. Well, I don't want to touch into too many other teams. (laughs) Uh, Just completed the year with the Knicks. Knicks offered a lot of different ways you had to look at things at different points in the year uh, with the way the roster was. So uh, some goods there, some bads there. Yes, it's always interesting when you get done. You can really take time to watch the other teams. So I've watched the Yankees and the Mets uh, quite a bit this week. Let's talk about the NBA playoffs and kind of go around what we've seen so far. It was an interesting day one. Overall, I'll just kind of leave it with this. What was your biggest takeaway from what we saw yesterday? Uh, my biggest takeaway from what I saw yesterday was something I thought that could happen. And that was the Minnesota-Memphis win by the Wolves in Memphis in game one. And the way I feel about that, I was writing up Memphis, as you know, you know for us, in the second half of the season. And there was a lot that was written about the last Memphis-Minnesota game, which was in Minnesota right after the All-Star break. And the Wolves won that game, I think, by like five. And a lot was made about the fact that it was getting very contentious between Memphis and Minnesota. And you would never think that that's sort of like a rivalry, but apparently it is. And... The reality of this Minnesota-Memphis series, A, Memphis still has to prove it in the playoffs, even though they had an absolutely fantastic season. But Minnesota can play at the same pace as Memphis. It's not a big game changer for them in terms of the pace and tempo, taking a lot of threes, um, long rebounds, you know, on missed threes, all that sort of stuff. Like Minnesota does that on a regular basis. So for them to go in there and get the win, I I was kind of laughing about the way the game was done on television because they just kept talking about Memphis the whole game, and Minnesota was ahead the whole game. (laughs) So why not give them a little bit of credit, and hopefully that's uh, a series that will go deep that will be very exciting to watch. Speaking of exciting to watch, Anthony Edwards, just his second season, this is his first opportunity on this stage Last year, a little bit of a slow start as the number one overall pick defensively. He started getting it going in the second half of his rookie season. And then this year, he kind of had a breakthrough. But, Brendan, how about what he's done in his first two? And I know the play-in isn't technically a playoff game, but what he did against the Clippers to put his team into the playoffs and then coming out and scoring 36 points yesterday in his playoff debut. Well, first of all, the whole Minnesota situation – And what they've been able to do uh, since the All-Star break last season 
because Ryan Saunders was replaced. It was a very unusual move for Chris Finch to come from someone else's coaching staff in the middle of the year. You don't see that move ever made. And then what they did in the second half of last season, Edwards would be thrown into that. Uh, They played pretty good basketball at the end of last season after the All-Star break. So that kind of like launched them this year and give them all the credit in the world. So the West wasn't very good, okay, in terms of depth. But they still won 46 games. And the fact that Russell and Towns connect very well, well, now you have Edwards and a a handful of other three-point shooters who can really do it. They play so wide open, so wide open. And you can take a three at any time. Any player almost on the roster, you're allowed to do that. So Edwards has the ultimate freedom to be in isolation, to take deep threes, depending on his matchup. And the thing that people don't realize about him, because you don't see these guys very much on national TV, is his size and his strength and his ability, you know, not only to go to the basket, but to make good moves at mid-range, also make threes. Um, He's a phenomenal talent. And we're going to catch on to him a little bit late in the national scheme of things, the way that team's being covered. But I, I, you know how I feel. I, Chris Finch was one of my leading candidates for Coach of the Year. It's a great turnaround situation. They have a lot of good young players, but like you say, Edwards is at the top of the list. Well, you're right, and it was unusual how they pulled Finch from the Toronto staff last year and made him the head coach of Minnesota. But after a year and a half, Brendan, it looks like it was the right move. Um, let's move on to Golden State. Now, this is a team that the national NBA fan knows plenty about, and you know, you look back to the first month, month and a half of the season, it was Golden State and Phoenix. And then Draymond Green gets hurt. Steph Curry misses the final month of the regular season. Klay Thompson was slow to get his legs back under them. Golden State right now seems to be as healthy and as complete as they have been all season long. Uh, based on what you saw from them last night, can you see them being a factor in this Western Conference playoff race? I got to be honest with you, Pat. I've been very leery of Golden State after those first 20 games. And the reason being, if you go back to the very beginning of the season, uh, and they were getting incredible contributions, not only from Curry, but then from so many complimentary guys, guys like Peyton and then Poole emerged. And, you know, even like uh, Porter and Abielitsa, they were getting all kinds of good contributions from everyone up and down their roster. But their schedule was so easy at the beginning, if you're really looking at it, they played like 10 out of their first 11 games at home against a lot of sub-500 teams. And, you know, was the start that they had real compared to what Phoenix was? So I compared them to Phoenix all year long. And Phoenix is by far and away the best team. Nine-man rotation. 10, 11, 12. It's not close. But now that they're back together again, is it enough time that you can just pop Curry back in with Thompson, with Green? Hey, maybe it is. You know, the way this season has gone, it's been so unusual with the protocols and injuries and everything else. And they do have home court advantage in this Denver series. You know, do you kind of start molding and forging forward? I think one issue could be if they play a team with a really good front line, which I'm not sure they're going to see necessarily in the Western Conference uh, playoffs. You know, even with Jokic with Denver, 
you know, with someone that has a lot of size where they can play power basketball and rebound the ball very well, would that affect Golden State with what they have? And, you know, Steve Kerr's biggest thing that he likes to do is to play green at five late in games. You know, if you're in a situation like that, let's say game three in Denver, and you want to go green against Jokic. Well, green's a very good defender, but Jokic is, like, supremely big. So there are still, to me, some holes in the Golden State thing. But in terms of the fact that Poole can be this extra scorer, and he was last night, and it takes the pressure off of Curry and Thompson in perimeter scoring, um, that's a big bonus. Brendan Brown, our Knicks radio analyst on the MSG Radio Network and right here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You hear him all season long calling the Knicks games along with Ed Cohen breaking down the NBA playoffs for us. All right, Brendan, you know, the most intriguing first-round series for most people is Brooklyn and Boston. And, you know, funnily enough, they had the history with the 2013 trade with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, and then that sets up Boston for a few years. And then they meet in the playoffs last year, and Brooklyn just completely blows them out. The Celtics were not 100%. Um, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and how they had to finish the regular season just to get into the playoffs against the Celtics team that from January 1st was probably the best team in the Eastern Conference, especially defensively. How do you look at this series? You know, it's a hard series to look at if you really break it down basketball-wise, you know. Uh, the first thing to me, which is huge in the big scheme of things of trying to figure out who's actually going to win this, is Rob Williams is out. <clears throat> and Rob Williams is that important to the backbone, the fulcrum, the interior rotations, the shot blocking, contesting shots. He's actually a decent offensive player as well in terms of value-oops and offensive rebounds and everything else. And the reason why he's important is Brooklyn can be very much a jump shot team. If you watch Brooklyn all year long, you know, even with Durant being such a prolific scorer, and he is, uh, when you get to Mills and then to Curry and then other guys on the team, even Aldridge is a big guy, you know, they can be a jump shot team. All right, now add in Irving. Well, Irving can go to the basket. Irving can score in the mid-range. Irving can do all kinds of different things. So even though Bruce Brown came out and said what he said about Rob Williams not being there, he's right. Because, you know, Horford will do a decent job of contesting around the rim. Tice will try to do the same thing. But it's not the same thing as Kyrie Irving going at Rob Williams because Rob Williams isn't there. And I think this gives Brooklyn a little bit of an advantage in that regard. Now, Flipping it around, how do you match up if you're Brooklyn with Tatum and Brown? Like, who's covering those guys? And you have Brown, uh, Bruce Brown from uh, Brooklyn to match up with one of the guys. But that's going to be very interesting to see how Steve Nash elects to, in the basic matchups of the starting lineup, uh, try to figure out how am I doing that? And, Pat, the one thing that we saw – you and I were together for the Brooklyn Knicks game late in the season, which was an excellent game, and Brooklyn played well and won in the second half. Um, when you have Mills out there with Irving, or you have Curry out there with Irving, or there's even a lineup where they get to Irving, Mills, and Curry, the three of them on the floor 
at one time. How are you doing the matchups? Like, how are you going to get away with that with not having any sides because you want the shooting on the floor? And so it, it's very intriguing. I don't think you can say there's a decided advantage for either team in the series, even though Brooklyn has, you know, Durant and, and Irving, who are so good and can put up 60, 70 on a night. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it factors in Irving going back to Boston, how much their fans don't like to him. Um, I think that makes it an even more rowdy environment, definitely, up in the center. So many storylines in that series. Um, one more for you, Brendan. And you're well aware, after last year's playoffs, calling the Knicks games, of what Trey Young can do in the postseason. And then they go through Philadelphia last year, and he got that Atlanta team to Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The other night, their season was on the brink in that play-in tournament elimination game against Cleveland. He scores 32 points in the second half. Now, Miami's the top seed. They've been the top seed for a while in the Eastern Conference. Somewhat under the radar, maybe, for a top seed. And Atlanta is the number eight. But considering Trey Young's history and what he can do on a night-to-night basis, how much trouble can this Hawks team give Miami? Well, all their games in the regular season were relatively close. One went to triple overtime. Um, so that's one way to look at it uh, in terms of the coaching and the strategy between Eric Spolstra and Nate McMillan and how they'll do it. Uh, the one thing I don't like for Atlanta's chances, and like you say, we, <laughs> we know Atlanta as well as any team that you can ever think of because of last year's playoffs and then this year's series, is Collins being out is, to me, a big mess because Miami – plays with a physicality and one of, one of the TV games I did this year was a game at Miami where the Knicks were pretty much out of the game by about the beginning of the second quarter because Miami played with such physicality not only with their big guys but also with their guards out on the perimeter bumping every cut you know knocking people off of pick and roll screens so they couldn't even run the pick and roll and there's a possibility that you know Spolstra just uh, elects to trap Trey Young from the jump of game one. He just traps him the whole time in every pick and roll and maybe in some different situations uh, where he would be in a scoring position or a scoring area. And then what does Atlanta do when that happens? And do you have good enough lineups out there? Bogdanovich you know, has this ankle injury that's a little bit troublesome. You don't have Collins. You have different people where Gallinari's in the starting lineup. Now, how good is your bench? <laughs> it's not the same sort of Atlanta team that you saw last year in the playoffs in terms of depth and quality depth that went to the conference finals. So uh, my whole thing, and Pat, we've talked about it a lot this year. Yes, the East has been very deep. Okay, it was. There are like 10, 11, 12 teams that are pretty good. But I don't know if anyone is like really good. Like, I don't, I don't see a great team out there. Not any of the eight teams that are even left. I think there are some very good teams. You know, Milwaukee, if they put it together the way they want with their personnel and they just started to get healthy as well, you know, they could be really good. And they have tremendous success against Chicago uh, late, recently in that matchup. But, you know, it, it's kind of wide open. So you can't count on Miami to say, well, they're the one seed and – 
you know, Atlanta's down a little bit on guys, there are going to be questions about Miami and how do they score at the end of the game, last five, six minutes of the game. They have a lot of options, but I don't think they have a bona fide like, number one score. Not Butler, not Adebayo. Hero, to me, is one of their best options because he can always create his shot. So I think Atlanta, is uh, because of no John Collins, is up against it a little bit. I don't think Eric Spolstra will let Trey Young go crazy. He'll start trapping him. And, you know, let's just see how that plays out. Brendan, great stuff. I really appreciate the time and the breakdown. And uh, have a happy Easter, you and your family. Thank you very much, Pat. Appreciate it. We'll be in touch. All right, sounds good. Brendan Brown, always good to hear him. We hear him all season long on the MSG Radio Network right here on 98.7 ESPN New York, uh, calling the Knicks games along with Ed Cohen for several years now. But uh, few people, nobody I've met, does a breakdown of the uh, NBA as a whole uh, like Brendan Brown. His dad, Hubie, by the way, 88 years old, was on the call yesterday for the uh, game in Philadelphia, the 76ers game. Um their first-round playoff game against Toronto and just continues to do an amazing job. Both New York baseball teams playing against opponents who, frankly, they should beat. And that, when you look at the Yankees and Mets, two teams with expectations of winning divisions, going to the playoffs, going to the World Series, because that's what we've got here this summer in New York City. No question about it for either team. A big part of doing that is taking care of business against teams that you should beat. Friday night, watching the Yankees-Orioles game from Camden Yards on the Yes Network, they had a great graphic of each team's record that won the division in the AL East the last four or five years, their record that season in games against the Baltimore Orioles. Last year, the Tampa Bay Rays, who won the AL East again, they were 18-1 and one against Baltimore. That's how you win divisions. That's why the Rays are such a good, efficient, smart organization. The Yankees threw a bunch of games that way against Baltimore the last two seasons. A Baltimore team that was among the worst in all of Major League Baseball. And then they came out on Friday night and they lost a game that they had no business losing. And then last night they almost did the same. Middle of the game, fifth inning, they're trailing 2 to nothing. And then the hail starts to fall at Camden Yards, and both teams were sent off the field. And when the Yankees came back, it kind of reminded me of the Chicago Cubs rally in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. Obviously, that was a little more important, a little more on the line in 2016 for the Cubs in the World Series. But if you remember, that game goes to extra innings, and they had about a 20-minute or so rain delay. And the Cubs and the Cleveland Indians had to go back to their clubhouses. And the, the famous speech given by Jason Hayward, the pep talk for his guys. And then Chicago comes out and wins that game in extra innings. Ben Zobris, the World Series MVP. It was kind of a little like that last night. The Yankees just needed a little momentum shift. And they made it work for them. They came back out trailing 2-0. And they strung together a 4-1 run rally in the fifth inning. The big blow, the two-run home run by Josh Donaldson. And... The Yankees lineup, especially situational hitting, has been their biggest detriment so far. Now, you say detriment, and yet they're 4-5. and five. They're not in a bad spot to start the season. But you don't want to make too much of a game on April 17th against a last-place Orioles team 
But games like this, if you don't take advantage of these opportunities, and I'll lump the Mets in against the Diamondbacks today because the Mets gave one back yesterday. They lost 3-2 to two after their rousing opening day victory the day before. You can't give games away to these teams. Look at the Knicks season this year. All right? Those of you who live and die with the Knicks and are wondering why the Knicks are not in the playoffs or didn't even make it into the play-in tournament, but teams like Charlotte did, and Atlanta is still playing, and Cleveland almost got themselves in. Do you know why the Knicks, one of the many reasons why the Knicks didn't make the playoffs or even the play-in tournament this season? Because early in the year, the first month of the season, when the Knicks had, according to the metrics, the easiest schedule over the first month of the NBA, they lost games that they never should have lost. They lost not once, but twice to Orlando at home. They lost to a Toronto team at the Garden that was playing without their top three players. And there were opportunities early in the season for the Knicks to take advantage of shorthanded teams, and they could not do it. There was a game against a shorthanded Pacers team early in the season, a Pacers team that was one of the worst in the NBA as the season went on. They lost that game. Those games early in the season count just as much, and I know it's cliche, but they count just as much as games late in the season. And when you're the Mets and you're in a tough division, you've got the defending World Series champs in your division. You've got the Phillies in your division who are always tough and in the mix. Miami can be pesky. You are in a situation where you can't afford to lose too many games to the Nationals. You can't afford to lose too many games to the Diamondbacks, to the Texas Rangers, to the Baltimore Orioles, to the Oakland A's. These are the teams that you have to, have to, have to beat up on. Because if you don't, then you're going to find yourself in a situation in September where you need to take three out of four against Tampa Bay if you're the Yankees. Or you need to take three out of four against the Red Sox. Or if you're the Mets, you need to take two out of three or sweep a three-game series against the Atlanta Braves. And you don't want to find yourself in that situation. And this point is more for the Yankees than the Mets. I really like what I see from the Mets. I said it last week when I was on in the evening. I think the Mets in recent years have become too Jacob deGrom reliant. And what the start of this season has done, and Buck Walters' presence and Max Scherzer's presence is a big reason for it, You could tell right now that the Mets are getting a lot more from their lineup than they have in recent years. I just think the expectations are higher. The pieces are in place. You bring in a guy like Starling Marte, Eduardo Escobar. Mark Hanna was off to a great start. Unfortunately, he tested positive for COVID-19, but he'll be back. You hope it's just a quick absence for him before he can return. The pieces are in place for this Mets lineup. They produced right off the bat, which was impressive. They were great on Friday afternoon. And if you can get anything out of Robinson Cano this season, and if Francisco Lindor can somewhat resemble the guy who he was before coming to New York, then you have one of the best lineups in Major League Baseball. So for the Mets, let's just talk about that. Let's put the pitching aside for a second. The Mets have one of the best lineups in Major League Baseball. Think about that. All right, that's pretty good. That's a good place to be. Now, let's take it a step further. Then you have Max Scherzer, second half of the season. Hopefully, you have Jacob deGrom. Carlos Carrasco's off to a really good start. Chris Bassett is off to a really good start. Taiwan Walker's injured. He got uh, 
He had a great start to last year. But you have David Peterson who can fill in, so you have some depth. Tyler McGill is off to a great start, so you have some depth. If you can get to a point with this Mets team where you just need average to slightly above average performance from your pitching staff, if that's what you need to go with this lineup, because the pitching's going to come and go. It's going to go up and down. Guys are going to be in and out. It's a very volatile position in Major League Baseball these days. The lineup has to be the anchor for this team. The lineup has to be the consistent thing that no matter who's pitching, no matter who you're facing, no matter what the situation is on a day-in, day-out basis, you have to rely or depend on four to five to six runs, occasionally eight or nine runs from that Mets lineup. It's that good of a lineup. With McNeil and Marte and Lindor and Alonzo and Escobar and Cano and Smith. I mean, Dom Smith is batting seventh in a lineup that doesn't even have Mark Hanna or Brandon Nimmo. It's a deep lineup. There are no holes in the lineup. Maybe a catcher, but when your lineup is that deep, that's okay. Same with the Yankees, by the way. So if the Mets are a team that day in, day out, can put a nine-man lineup out there that performs consistently. And if you can get into a position where your pitching, led hopefully ultimately by DeGrom and Scherzer, becomes icing on the cake, that's how you win. That's how you win divisions. That's how you win championships. That's how you become a dominant team. And the Mets have the potential, once they're whole, to become a dominant team. Now, yesterday, Carlos Carrasco goes five shutout innings. He strikes out eight. He lowers his ERA to 0.84 through his first two starts of the season. Carrasco has been a good Major League Baseball pitcher his entire career when he is healthy. He started the season in the rotation. His first two starts have been brilliant. After yesterday's performance, Buck Showalter spoke about what he saw from his starter. How was uh, Carrasco today? Good, huh? That was pretty good. He, uh, it's been one of the, I wouldn't say surprises, but a real, knock on wood, been a real good uh, development for early in the season that Carlos uh, can tell he feels good physically. Mostly, you know, cliche, free and easy. He's, he's attacking hitters and pitching like Carlos can and has. That's, that's, that develop continues to bodes well for us. He's, he was solid. So you have Carrasco on the back end of that rotation. Off to a terrific start. This is a guy who, I think four years ago it was, led the American League in wins. He won 18 games in a season. He's a really, really good pitcher. Now, during these last three to four-year stretch of Mets baseball, outside of Jacob DeGrom, the best pitcher to wear a Mets uniform, unquestionably, has been Seth Lugo. And he's been one of the most valuable commodities in baseball, somewhat under the radar. He can close, he can set up, he can start if need be. He has become such a vital piece of this Mets staff. And this is why you have to be somewhat encouraged about the 6-3 and three start, because you don't have DeGrom, and Seth Lugo has been one of the most troublesome stories of the early season for the Mets on Monday. I mean, look, the Mets could be nine and oh, I know, you know, it's baseball and nobody goes 162 and oh, the Mets have 
blown three games in their bullpen. They're only three games that they've lost all season. And two of them have been Seth Lugo. Monday against the Phillies, when they were up 4 nothing and they lose 5-4, to four, Lugo gave up two runs in a third of an inning. And yesterday, he comes in and pitches an inning and gives up two runs in a game in which the Mets lose 3-2. to two. So Lugo has been one of the biggest concerns to begin the season. He's got the track record, so you figure he's going to get a longer look. But he doesn't have that track record with Buck Showalter. But what did Buck see yesterday from a struggling Seth Lugo? He didn't necessarily, you know, we've been spoiled by, by him for a long time here, and he's pitched some very meaningful innings already for us this year. He will again. It just wasn't his, wasn't his day. Did some good things to keep us engaged in the game. Didn't get away from him, and, you know, we had a chance there at the end. You know, we just didn't score enough runs today, obviously. We knew that Gallon was going to be a challenge. He's uh, – Solid pitcher. We knew coming into the series he was going to be a real challenge for us, and he was. And here's Lugo after his tough outing yesterday. I mean, really, you know, get ahead of guys, you know. Uh, you know, I thought I made some good pitches, you know. Called it, get more away, but, you know, I fell behind a couple guys and, uh, you know, really just stay on the attack. So, you know, I think that's that's really important part of pitching. So, you know, I fell behind uh, to Alcantara, and he, you know, hit a 2-0 home run. So, you know, you get ahead 0-2, you know, it's a different ballgame. The Mets bullpen is deep. Their pitching rotation is deep. Their starting staff, their lineup is deep and extremely talented. The bullpen, it works if Lugo is Lugo. And that's one thing that the Mets and Mets fans have been able to take for granted the last four years. Lugo comes in, he's going to do his job, and he's going to do it at a high level. Well, he hasn't so far this year. But again, he's got the track record. He's got the body of work. You hope that he can turn that around because he is a big, big part of this puzzle. Each team in New York has a relief pitcher with a resume that is struggling right now. I am much more confident that Lugo is going to turn it around and give the Mets what they need than I am that Aroldis Chapman is going to turn it around and give the Yankees what they need. Part of that is the Yankees need more from Chapman than the Mets need from Lugo. Or do they? Or do they? Might the Yankees have enough arms in that bullpen to counteract the continued regression from their $18 million closer, Aroldis Chapman? (laughs) Yanks and Mets both wrapping up weekend series today against inferior opponents. And again, I spoke about the opportunity or the importance of taking advantage of these opportunities against teams that you should beat. And the Yankees... It's been a tough slate to begin the season. They haven't had a day off yet because of the rain out on what was supposed to be opening day back on April 7th. Since then, uh, three games against the Red Sox, or yeah, three games against the Red Sox, four games against Toronto, and today will be the third and final game against Baltimore. There's an opportunity for the Yankees to put some distance between themselves and the rest of the division over the next three weeks. And you talk about the importance of beating the teams you should beat. Well, the Yankees have a whole slate of those games coming up. They're off tomorrow, and then they go to uh, Detroit for three games, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then they're back home for a six-game homestand, three against the Cleveland Guardians, three against Baltimore. And then they're back out on the road, three games in Kansas City. That takes you through Sunday, May 1st. There is not a team in that group 
that I would label as an upper-class American League team. The best of the bunch is probably Detroit. I think they're an improving team in the American League Central. But the Yankees got to beat up on these teams. Because, yeah, it was a tough start to the season, and they did okay. Taking two out of three against Boston, splitting a four-game set against Toronto. That's the name of the game, to win divisions, to get yourself into the playoffs. Play well enough against the top-level teams and beat up on the bad teams because there's not that many top-level teams anymore. Now, I think the reason, one of the big things with this collective bargaining agreement that led to the lockout, that led to the delay of the start of the Major League Baseball season, was the players' union wants there to be more competitive balance. They want there to be fewer Baltimore Orioles and Oakland A's and Washington Nationals, teams that are completely tearing down and trying to build back up. Now, we've seen it work a couple of times in the past decade. Houston bottomed out. They won a World Series in 2017. They went to the World Series a couple of times in addition to that. The Cubs bottomed out about a decade ago, and they were able to accumulate all of these draft picks that led to Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant and Javi Baez, and then they were able to make the trades that they needed to make to bring in Aroldis Chapman, and that led to the 2016 World Series. But for every Houston Astros and for every Chicago Cubs, there's a Baltimore Orioles team that's been miserable for five years. There's the Kansas City tore. I mean, they, they tore down for, for three decades, and they won the 2015 World Series. And now they're at the bottom of the barrel again. So I think the Major League Baseball Players Association wants to see less of that. But guess what? These teams are crummy now. So if you're the Yankees, take advantage of that. They did yesterday after a slow start. Yankees scoring four runs in the fifth inning after a hail delay forced the players off the field for about a half an hour. It was the second weather delay of the night. Yankees go on to beat the Orioles 5-2, to avenging their loss from the night before. The Yankees' bullpen fantastic yesterday fantastic really to start the season outside of their highest paid relief pitcher Aroldis Chapman but Michael King for the second time in three days does a great job out of the bullpen he went two innings last night two shutout innings and struck out three batters and afterwards King was asked if Aaron Boone is starting to have more confidence in him I hope so. I mean, that's kind of the only thing I can hope to do is uh, gain confidence in him and trust in him and get put in any situation and, and have the having the confidence in the manager is, is big for me, too, because then it builds my confidence and I go out there and uh, feel like I can get anybody out. Well, how about Aaron Boone? Let's hear from him on his confidence in Michael King. It grew a lot last year. The second half, he pitched in some big spots and some big games for us down the stretch and has, has continued to build on that now and uh he was huge tonight for us to be able to give us a little length when we didn't have much down there we were staying away from a lot of guys tonight so you know once Sears was out of there you know it was going to be Kinger we were going to ride Kinger there as, as much as we could and and I thought he pitched really well Yankees last night lineup had Joey Gallo in left Aaron Hicks in center Aaron Judge in right Rizzo at first Torres at second Kiner Falefa at short and Josh Donaldson at third base. Stanton was the DH, which meant that it was DJ LeMahieu's night to not be in the starting lineup. You know who's given them something, if you've been watching the Yankees, is this backup catcher, Jose Trevino. He makes all the right plays. He was in the middle of everything. Yesterday, look, it's a backup catcher. If you look at him, he doesn't scream speed, 
he was on third base yesterday, and there was a wild pitch, or might have even been a pass ball, that didn't even get that far away from the catcher. And his instincts and his reaction was as soon as the ball got away, he took off for home plate. He scored on the wild pitch. That was the insurance run for the Yankees in the sixth inning to give them a 5-2 to two lead. Keep an eye on this guy, uh, especially because Kyle Higashioka has struggled to begin the season. Yes, he earned the job in spring training, but Higashioka is not a guy with a long track record. So if he continues to struggle, the job is certainly not guaranteed to him. Trevino, I really like the energy that he's bringing. I like the baseball awareness that he's brought. He's batting 500 right now. He's taken advantage of his limited opportunities so far. He had two more hits last night in that run. But scoring that run from third base, especially if you're the backup catcher and you're not a burner, that showed me a lot. That was a good sight to see. 1-800-919-3776. Pat O'Keefe with you Easter Sunday morning here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Um, we'll wait to see what the Yankees lineup is today, see who is out of the lineup. I, I got to be honest with you. I don't know how much longer. I know you take away the catcher, and that's either Trevino or it's Higashioka. And look, the guys on the Michael K show have been talking about this every single afternoon because those guys have been around baseball for a long time and followed this for a long time, and they don't even seem to understand it. How you can have nine everyday players fit into eight spots in your lineup. It doesn't make sense to me. How is Aaron Judge not in the lineup on Friday night in Baltimore? How is DJ LeMayhew not in the starting lineup yesterday in Baltimore? I mean, these are two guys in the Yankees lineup who in the last five years have been top five MVP candidates. We're three weeks, no, we're two weeks into the season. These guys need days off already? I think LeMayhew's already been out of the lineup twice this season. That's absurd. And here's the thing. I understand you got nine guys for eight spots. Are all these nine guys created equal? I mean, it has to be evenly distributed. It's like the third grade CYO basketball team that I coach. Where this kid, who never plays basketball in his entire life, and doesn't work on the game on his own time, doesn't go to basketball camps, but he's got to play as much as my star player, who goes to camps all the time, who's outside in his driveway all the time, but no, they got to play the same amount of time. But that's third grade. These are the New York freaking Yankees. You're telling me that Aaron Hicks has to play as much as Aaron Judge? You're telling me that Joey Gallo has to play as much as DJ LeMahieu? At what point, if you're Aaron Boone or if you're Brian Cashman, at what point can we identify, let's take the nine guys, let's line them up in front of us. Let's look at all of them together and their numbers and their stats and what they're doing. At what point can we identify you Joey Gallo, are the worst of the nine. You, Aaron Hicks, are among the worst of the nine. So take a seat on the bench. When we need to give somebody a day off, we'll put you in the lineup. I know they gave up a lot for Joey Gallo. He's an all-star. He's a good glove. He's a 30-home run guy. Look, before you know it, he is going to have been a Yankee for a full calendar year. They gave up assets to bring him in last year. He hit a couple of big home runs. He was very good defensively last season. Outside of that, he was an absolute disaster. A disaster. And now, to start this season, he's an absolute disaster. He's batting 143. He's slugging 143. 
He's got an on-base percentage of 294. I thought this guy's supposed to get on base. Home runs and walks. He doesn't even get on base 30% of the time. But he's got to play as much as Aaron Judge. And he's got to play as much as John Carlos Stanton. At what point? We're nine games into the season. But here's the thing with the Yankees. All right, Every year it's the same thing every single year with this team. They get off to slow starts. And then they start cooking the middle of the season. They make a little bit of a run at Boston or Tampa Bay or whoever's in first place in the American League East. They make it interesting, and then they start to break down. It happens year after year after year. I just told you their upcoming schedule through May 1st. How about taking advantage of that soft upcoming schedule? How about you become the team that the other teams in the division are chasing for once? It's been a very long time since that's happened. 2019 it happened. Aaron Boone's second season. He came in in 2018. They were disappointing. Boston ran away with the division. In 2019, the Yankees ran away with the division. And the last two years were COVID. So I'm even willing to write those off to a certain degree. But COVID, I know COVID itself isn't over, but the COVID situation of empty ballparks and guys in and out of the lineup, for the most part, we are past that in Major League Baseball. So you cannot use that as an excuse anymore. I know the Mets have a couple of guys, and there will be instances this season where a guy or two is plucked from the lineup. But we're beyond that. The Yankees are 5-4. and four. They're playing the Orioles today. Why don't you run off 11 wins in your next 14 games solidify yourself on top of this division and go from there but i, I gotta look i don't know if the lineup's out yet today i have the lineup in front of me Pat. all right well who, who's out today or uh, who's in rizzo's to out today rizzo's out which today. is weird because they have a day off tomorrow right exactly so R- rizzo's out today but 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 we but we get to see joey gallo right so they have hicks leading off he's in center oh we, we absolutely we need aaron hicks yes judges at batting second in right field well that's nice of them to let aaron judge play today <laughs> donaldson's okay, batting third at third base okay stanton's dh at four yeah lemayhew fifth is at first oh put dj back in he was only runner-up for mvp <laughs> two years ago torres is batting sixth at second kyle higashioka is behind the plate batting seventh seventh uh, Isaiah Kiner Falefa is batting eighth at shortstop. And how about the new Yankee was just called up today because they sent down JP Sears, Tim LaCastro's in center oh, field. It, the, the former Ithaca Bomber. Yes, yeah, so, so Gallo's out too. Uh, I, yes, that would make sense. Yes, Joey Gallo's out. Yep. But, but then why is Rizzo out? Well, <laughs> I, I, I all due respect to Tim LaCastro, he's it, a New York guy. He's a great story. I know a lot of people that went to Ithaca. Our guy Ed Cohen, I'm sure, is happy that there's an Ithaca guy in the Yankees starting lineup. But why is Rizzo not in the starting lineup? Is it Zimmerman a lefty? So now you lose Gallo and uh, Rizzo because they're both lefties. R- Rizzo can't hit lefties? I'm sure he can. I mean, he's a great contact hitter. <sighs> I, I don't understand it. All right. So, so Hicks, Judge, give it to me one more time. We have Hicks, Judge, Donaldson, Stanton, LeMahieu, Torres, Higashioka, Kiner Falefa, and LaCastro. Higashioka, Kiner Falefa, and LaCastro, the bottom three in the lineup. That's not very good. And you got Anthony Rizzo sitting on the bench. And Nestor Cortez pitching. So no Rizzo today, no Gallo today, but I look at that as a net positive. Uh, and the lineup situation with the Yankees continues to confuse me. Now we got two guys out of the lineup today because Tim LaCastro is in the starting lineup and playing. What is he playing? Right field? Uh, Left field. Left field. Okay. 
Will Pesic, you just gave us the Yankees starting lineup. Do you have the Mets lineup? I do. Um, All right, what do we got? We're still without Mark Hanna. Um, yeah. We have Jeff McNeil at left field. He's leading off. Starley Marte is in right field. He's batting second. Some season he's having to start. Yep. Lindor's batting third at shortstop. Alonzo DHing batting fourth. Escobar batting fifth. Uh, at third base, Dominic Smith batting sixth at first. Travis Jankowski in center. He's batting seventh. James McCann batting eighth and catching. And Luis Guillorme batting ninth and uh, playing second base. Pat, I'm not shocked that Alonzo's DHing because it seems like Dom Smith is the better defensive third baseman earlier on this year. It seems like? Dom Smith's a good <laughs> defensive first baseman. Pete Alonzo's a butcher at first base. I, look, I love Alonzo. He's a great clubhouse guy. He's a great power hitter. He's great for the Mets. He's kind of the face of the franchise. You know, DeGrom pitches one every five days, and, and over the last year he's hardly pitched at all. You know, Alonzo's the guy in that clubhouse now. He's not a good first baseman. And it's going to be interesting to see the ratio of how many games Alonzo plays at first base compared to how many games Dom Smith plays at first base as this season continues. Because Buck Showalter's got a tough job here because you don't want to... Look, status matters, and Alonso doesn't want to be a full-time DH, but at a certain point, what's best for the ball club has to supersede everything. Now, you, you don't want to take a guy like Alonso and say, okay, you're only DHing, maybe we'll put you at first base once a week because you, you can't do that to your star player. But... I'll be interested to see how many opportunities Dom Smith gets at first base because it doesn't make sense when they're both in the lineup unless you're literally looking for a day for Dom Smith to get off of his feet, as they like to say, as Aaron Boone loves to say. It doesn't make sense when they're both in the lineup, and they're both going to be in the lineup more often than not. It doesn't make sense to have Dom Smith as the DH and Pete Alonso at first base. I mean, in New York, we have been incredibly spoiled over the last 30, 35 years by some of the best defensive first basemen ever, ever. I mean, you go back to the 1980s, maybe the two best ever were playing first base at the exact same time in Keith Hernandez and Don Mattingly. And then Don Mattingly retires and Tino Martinez holds that spot. And then you had Mark Teixeira. Uh, Dom Smith is a pretty slick looking first baseman. Anthony Rizzo, by the way, I would put in that category as well. So we've been pretty spoiled in, in terms of seeing the best that defense can be played at that position, and I would not put Pete Alonso in that category. He's more in the Jason Giambi category, and there's a role for that guy in the major leagues. There's a role for Pete Alonso, and the fact that the DH is now full-time in the National League I think makes it more likely that we could see more of Alonso at DH. But the Mets are hamstrung, Pat. They have Robinson Cano on their team, and I don't know why he's playing the field. Yeah, second base, whatever, but he's not what he once was. Why are the Mets consistently putting Cano in the lineup when you get more production offensively from Smith and Alonzo together? And Smith can play the outfield. We know that. So if Alonzo's at first base, you could still have Cano DH and put Smith in left or put Smith in right field. He's played the outfield before. There's alleyways for Buck Showalter to have both of them in the lineup at the same time. And I think he's going to get there. I think Buck Showalter is taking the first month 
month and a half as kind of an information gathering on his team. I think he's trying to keep everybody happy. He doesn't want to upset anybody to begin the season because long-term, that's not good for the clubhouse. And I think he's going to ultimately decide on what works best because there's a lot of versatility and there's a lot of... Now, the one thing with the Mets, there's not there's not guys that are being left out of the lineup that you say, this guy has to be in the lineup every single day. Like, I don't look at Robinson Cano and say, he's got to be in the lineup every day. I don't look at Dom Smith and say, he's got to be in the lineup every single day. It's different than the Yankees situation in that respect. The Yankees have in my mind, eight guys that have to be in the lineup every single day, and they're not. Like, in fact, one of them is not in the lineup today, and that's Anthony Rizzo. For the Mets, I think that Buck Showalter is using this as an information-gathering opportunity, uh, and the more that they win early and the more of a buffer that they can provide themselves, the longer he could take to figure this out. So that's the, that's the story today. So Dom Smith at, at first, you said, and Alonzo is, is the DH today. Um. Let me swing this back over to the Yankees. And I don't know if this is... His numbers are actually good to begin the season. Um, he was on base, I think, three times last year or last night. Aaron Hicks uh, batting the leadoff role, which I kind of like. If Aaron Hicks is going to play, I don't hate him as the leadoff hitter. Uh, I don't think that Aaron Hicks is a guy who needs to be in the Yankees lineup every day. But the numbers to begin the season, yesterday he gets two hits and he also walks. So he was on base three times yesterday. His on-base percentage is 464. His slugging percentage, 478. His batting average, 348. Small sample size, I know. He plays good defense. Aaron Hicks needs to produce this year. I'm sorry. I mean, at a certain point, and we're coming to that point, but at a certain point, we have to decide whether or not Aaron Hicks is an everyday Major League Baseball player. Because to be honest with you, I know when Brian Cashman signed him to that seven-year, $70 million contract in 2019, it seemed like a bargain at the time. But Aaron Hicks is a guy who we have been talking about his potential since he became a Yankee. He became a Yankee in 2015. He's been here for a very long time. After the 2015 season, Cashman traded the Yankees' backup catcher, John Ryan Murphy, for Aaron Hicks. Hicks was a bench player for the Minnesota Twins, a former first-round pick who had, this word again, potential. And his first season in New York, he didn't hit, but he made some incredible, incredible plays in the outfield. Throws, catches, he brought a certain brand of athleticism back then that we hadn't seen from a Yankee in a long time. And I think more was made of Hicks's potential because of that than anything else. But I mean, let's look at his best two seasons were 2017 and 2018. 2017, he bets 266, 15 home runs, 52 RBIs, and an 847 OPS. 2018, he bets 248. 27 homers, 79 RBIs, and 833 OPS. 2018, he actually received one fifth place vote for MVP. I have no idea who cast that. I don't know. Maybe Brian Cashman got a MVP vote in 2018 because how anybody could ever give a fifth place MVP vote to Aaron Hicks for anything he's done as a Yankee. And again, I understand he's off to a nice start this season. Let's see if it continues. But here's the last three years for Aaron Hicks. 2019, he plays in 59 out of 162 games. 2020, 
He plays in 54 out of 60 games. So the shortened COVID season, he played in 90% of the games. Last year, he plays in 32 out of 162 games. At a certain point, are we allowed to say that Aaron Hicks shouldn't be a starting Major League Baseball player for the New York Yankees? Are we getting there? And I understand I'm saying this as he's batting 348 with an on-base percentage of 464. I understand. We're nine games into the season. Can I see more? Can I? What's up there, Will? Perhaps the most interesting thing about this whole Aaron Hicks situation is he has a t- he had a torn sheath uh, ligament in his wrist, which is the same injury that pretty much ended Mark Teixeira's career, and they're both switch hitters. So how long is the Aaron Hicks playing well train going to last here in 2022? I don't have high hopes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how, how you could after seeing his injury history the past couple of years. But when healthy, we could see what he could do. Obviously, you you remember that insane catch he had against the Minnesota Twins back in 2019. Though though he shows flashes of brilliance, but most of the time he's sidelined off the field. And that seven-year, $70 million contract that he signed by Brian Cashman is, is looks like a laughable deal, too, when you were going over the contracts earlier on in the show. Cashman thought he outsmarted everyone with that contract let me lock up this guy who's got all this potential i'm gonna overpay a little bit now but on the back end of this contract it's gonna look really good well guess what the front end of the contract it hasn't looked good i just told you he played 59 54 and 32 games his last three seasons and on top of that when he plays is he even good his best season he batted 248 his best season that's the best he has provided as the Yankees starting center fielder. He drove in 79 runs, his best season since coming to New York. But Aaron Hicks is part of this rotation in which he's got to play as much as Aaron Judge or Anthony Rizzo. I mean, Hicks is playing today. And you know what? Play him today. I got no problem with you playing him today. Ride the hot hand. He's playing well right now. He had a good night last night. And that's the other thing about this ridiculous, absurd lineup shuffle. There's no acknowledgement given to, hey, he had a good night last night. Let's keep him in the lineup. And I know that touches the analytics world. I have not studied analytics like the people who do this professionally. But I do know this. It means something if somebody has two good games in a row just from a lifetime of watching and reporting on sports and baseball specifically, if somebody has two good games in a row, it would lead to believe that there's a chance he could have a third good game. There are streaks. There are hot streaks. There are cold streaks. Just like Joey Gallo shouldn't be in the lineup every day because he's not playing well right now. And you take Anthony Rizzo out today, and he won't play tomorrow either. So he'll be nice and rested when the Yankees are back on the field on Tuesday. Although they do have a tasty pinch hitter on their bench this afternoon with Rizzo and with Joey Gallo for the series finale against the Baltimore Orioles. All right, so just to update you, the uh, Yankees starting lineup this afternoon against the Baltimore Orioles. Yankees looking for the season uh, the series victory. Uh, Hicks, Judge, Donaldson, Stanton, LeMayhew, Torres, Higashioka, Kiner Falefa, and Tim LaCastro, who just got called up from AAA Scranton, is in the starting lineup as the left fielder today. Nestor Cortez on the mound. No Anthony Rizzo today and 
no Joey Gallo. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to the phones. Dwight is checking in from Brooklyn. Dwight, good morning. How you doing, Mr. O'Keefe? Um, Dwight from Brooklyn, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I, I, in last year, the Yankees finished one game ahead of Toronto, right? But their run differential was like like 100 uh, runs less than Toronto. So that was kind of that led me to believe that the manager is doing a good job. Don't they? That's one way to interpret it. I mean, that's what that. I mean, I don't really agree. Also, with the way they use the lineup, also, but uh, but I think uh, one thing I do believe. I think Aaron Hicks should be in the lineup every day. Uh, like you, I don't believe Joey Gallo should be in there every day. But probably because of the trade, they want to justify the trade and the money he makes. They're trying to bring him in the lineup every day. I, I really didn't really understand the Donaldson trade if they already had these problems already. Um, I think the Yanks really should have uh, maybe had signed Carrera and maybe traded that young guy in the shortstop in the minor leagues for some pitching or, or, or maybe a mate upgraded like that because two years ago they, like, led the league in runs. Last year they were one of the worst teams in runs. Their pitching carried them. And this year it seems like the same thing. You're right. The pitching is carrying them so far this year. Joy, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Aaron Hicks should be in the starting lineup every day? Because he's an A-plus defender, all right, and he's, he gets on base a, a, a lot. Uh, they don't Because of the simple fact they don't have a leadoff hitter, I mean, with no speed, another problem I have with them, I think they should try to get Sterling Marte like the Mets did, and, uh, and those, those simple reasons. Because, uh, and I think if he got the chance to play every day, I think his statistics would be very good. He said, I think in 2018, or one year he hit like 27 home runs, had the 79-something RBIs. But he only had about 400 plate appearances. With 500, 500 to 600 plate appearances, I think the stats will go up if he can stay healthy. Well, that's the problem, Dwight. I, Thanks for the call. That's the big if with this guy. And that was, the, that was the high watermark for Aaron Hicks. And I think he only played about 130 games that season. I don't think he's ever played more than 133 games in a season. And then the last three years, he's been virtually a non-entity. 2019, he played 59 games, and 2021, he played 32 games. The only quote-unquote full season he's played since signing his seven-year, $70 million contract was 2020 when the team only played 60 games, and he played in 54 of them. Look, this is, for me, the way that I'm speaking about Aaron Hicks now, I felt for a while. I, I just don't understand why he gets penciled in as the starting center fielder every single night when you have a bona fide major league starter who's on the bench every single day. I don't understand. That being said, okay, let's give credit where credit is due. Aaron Hicks, to start the season, is getting on base at a 468 clip. His batting average is 348. So yeah, I have no problem with him being in the lineup today. And I have no problem with him being the leadoff hitter. Because the Yankees, and our last caller's right, Dwight said the Yankees don't have a real leadoff hitter. He's correct. But Aaron Hicks, the one thing he does, I shouldn't say the one thing, because I wouldn't say he's an A-plus defender. I think at a point in his career, he was close to that. But I think the fact that he's now 32 years old and has had a long injury history, he's no longer an A-plus defender. He is an above-average defender. He's the best defensive center fielder that the Yankees have on their team. And I don't love the idea of putting Aaron Judge in center field every single day because of the wear and tear it would put on his body. Okay, so I do see a role on this team for Aaron Hicks. I just don't see it every single day. That being said, if he's going to continue to bat 340 
more importantly, if he's going to continue to get on base 46% of the time, then yeah, let's ride him out and let's keep him in the leadoff spot. And that's what he's doing right now. Alex in the Bronx. Alex, how you doing? How you doing, buddy? I totally agree with you on Gleyber Torres. Keep him at second, leave him there. He is totally a good, smooth uh, second baseman uh, for the Yankees. Again, I'm referring I'm, I'm this as a Mets fan, uh, but I just like baseball overall. He's if a it, great second baseman. If it doesn't and, work um, out by the end of the year, then you move on. But you've got to give this I, I, guy I a year. I agree with that, yeah. And then you take take, take the option or not, let, let him go. Uh, put on waivers or what, what have you. Um, either or, it, it, it's a great uh, great bat in the lineup. That, that's the one thing I want to say. And um, Aaron Hicks, you're right with Aaron Hicks. He kept injured a lot, and that's it. Alex, thanks for the call. When Brian Cashman made the trade for Aaron Hicks in 2015, it seemed early on like a steal. Well, let me re- let me backtrack. At first, actually, it seemed like a bad trade because John Ryan Murphy was a backup catcher who had shown some pop in a very small sample size. So people were high on John Ryan Murphy. They were disappointed when Cashman traded him for a guy in Aaron Hicks who came in here as a fourth outfielder. But Hicks's first two months as a Yankee, while he did not hit, he made some incredible plays in the field, plays, catches, throws, the likes of which we hadn't seen a Yankee make in a long time. And everybody got really wrapped up in that and really excited about that. And then he put together his best two seasons as a Yankee, 2017 and 2018. He goes 15 homers, 52 RBIs in 17 and then 27 homers and 79 RBIs in 18, and he was actually pretty good in the 2017 playoffs when the Yankees went to Game 7 of the ALCS, the closest they have come to reaching the World Series since they last won the World Series. But since 2018, nothing. Nothing. He hasn't been available. When he has been available, he hasn't been good. So at what point, and and look, Cashman is looking at that, and Brian Cashman's got an ego. Anybody who thinks he doesn't have an ego is crazy and fooling themselves. Cashman wants this trade to work out. I know he wants all of these moves to work out, but Cashman wants this trade to work out. It looked like it did in 2017 and 2018. Cashman bet on it by giving Hicks a seven-year, $70 million contract, and we're three years into that contract, and he has done absolutely nothing. Now, there's four years left. He's off to a good start this season. Do I think it's going to continue? I don't. There's no body of evidence to convince me that Aaron Hicks is all of a sudden going to be a 260 hitter with a 430 on base percentage who can play 140 games. There's no evidence to support that. Let's go to Jason in Warwick. Jason, how you doing? What's up, my guy? I, I love that you guys really bring the sports. So fluffy. What did you do this weekend? What did you eat for dinner? You're bringing it. I, love I had it. chicken last night, but thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel bad for baseball managers because they're like referees. Like, if you make the right call, all right, we all knew that. That's what you should have done. Make the wrong call, everybody's all over you. We all know that Boone's not even – He's he can only put what he's got on the roster – And we know that's coming from Cashman, right? We can all agree with that one. What's on the roster or who's in the lineup? 
Well, what's on the roster... Yes, what's on the roster is from Cashman, correct. Right. So I think he should deserve a little bit more blame on this chemistry because I think it's a bad chemistry, dude. I'm I'm a Yankees fan, but I'm not a hater. I'm not that guy. I love... I'm a baseball purist. I watch any game that's on, and they look more exciting than we do because... I don't know what we're doing. I really don't. Like, I don't understand the lineup. I don't understand the shuffling of every day. Um, you need a rest today already. Like, what is, we're two weeks in. Like, so I just feel bad for Boone because we know he's not really making all those calls coming from up above. But he does have to make some difficult calls, Jason, and I appreciate the call. You said something interesting that I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you reminded me to do so. The other part of this that I just don't like is the shuffling of the lineup. I think it matters where you are in the lineup every single day. And I think players respond well to consistency. I think there's something to be said, and this is to the point I'm making about Glaber Torres. There's something to be said about arriving at the ballpark every single day, knowing you're going to be playing second base and batting sixth. I think that's important. I think... Aaron Hicks could benefit if that's the way the Yankees choose to go. I think Aaron Hicks can benefit by knowing that every day he comes to the ballpark, he's in center field and he's leading off. You know? DJ LeMayhew. All right, I'm playing... Well, he's obviously the tricky case because he's the guy who plays multiple positions. But Anthony Rizzo. Anthony Rizzo knows... He doesn't know if he's playing first base. He doesn't know if he's going to be the DH. He doesn't know if he's going to be out of the lineup. He doesn't know if he's leading off. He doesn't know if he's batting third. He doesn't know if he's batting second. I think there's something to be said for consistency. You look at the 1996 Yankees. Paul O'Neill played right field, batted third. Bernie Williams, center field, batted fourth. Derek Jeter, shortstop, batted either first or second every single Day. Every day. For five years. Paul O'Neill, until he got old and started to break down late in his career, was the number three hitter for about five years. Those entire five years, he played next to the same guy. He batted in front of the same guy. How did that work out? I think that it's important to have consistency. It's important to have a routine. We see it in the NBA. R.J. Barrett. His third year in the NBA, ever since he came into the NBA, he knows when he arrives for a game at Madison Square Garden, he's in the starting lineup at either the two guard or the small forward. Julius Randle, ever since he came to New York, knows when he shows up at the garden for a game, he is starting at power forward. Mitchell Robinson, when he shows up and he's healthy and he's available to play, he's the Knicks starting center. I think that's something that Tom Thibodeau has done really well. I think it's important in sports, and it used to be that way. And I think that's an overlooked thing that we have gotten away from that affects these guys negatively.